What a blessing it is for us to have this time together to take our Bibles and open and begin to consider God's Word, our great Savior, Jesus Christ, His abundant power that is at work. I ask you to return with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 16. Today I will read verses 6 through 10, then we will pray and begin to uh, try to unpack some interesting and complicated things woven into this passage. So listen as I read Acts 16, verse 6 through 10. And they, uh, that is Paul, Silas, and now Timothy, went through the region to Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word at Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray. Lord, as we always do when we open your word, we plead with you that you would help us. We understand, God, without the help and aid of your spirit, we will not rightly discern spiritual things. And your word is truth. It is eternal truth. It reveals to us the things that we are to believe. And so, God, I would ask that at this time you would be pleased to help us, your people, as we're here, that we would understand. Lord, that you would grant us a humility and that we would be able to sit and really stand amazed at the, the way in which you are pleased to work, that we would be further humbled and, and just stirred to an unending amazement at the power of and purposes of our God. Lord, we pray that you would move us to worship. Give us ears to hear. Grant me to speak in a way that's clear and faithful and helpful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we take up this, uh, I titled this sermon, uh, Prevention, Providence, and Priority. And we're going to try to unpack these things. And there are a few things within this. I'm so thankful when we're covering narratives like this sections of scripture that unfold historical events as it goes piece by piece sometimes there are elements within the unfolding of events that allow us to step back and view things with a a fuller biblical theology and as we do sometimes uh, uh, it, it baffles and or even blows our minds how God works. And when we look at this, I hope it's helpful for us. And I want to bring some clarification because there are always within given translations a degree of strength and weakness that's associated with them. And today, I want us to look first of all at what I would say is the oft perplexing nature of prevention and providence. Now, what that means is Oftentimes, the things that God stops 
us from doing or accomplishing, the places he stops us from going, the way he providentially works, many times we have not a clue why. Why he's stopping it. Why he's hindering it. Why he's preventing it. What's going on? And at times, it's just things are out of our hands. They're out of control. They're beyond us. And what I want us to begin to do and make sure that we always do is we see the secondary means, actors, agents, sources, individuals, and we see their activity and we see even at times the wrong they do and we understand they will be held accountable for the wrong they do. They will have to stand in judgment before God for the wrong they do. But even the wrong they do is by divine design. That God has a purpose and indeed has permitted it, no matter how bad it is, and no matter who it is. So I want to begin to unpack this. Now, first of all, as we take this up to, to start these thoughts, it says in chapter 16, verse 6, as they went through uh, Phrygia and Galatia, and again, you may not have a clear geographical reference to these things in your mind, and that's not all that necessary, though some of your Bibles may have that in the back, which can be useful. Uh, but as they're in one area, and their desire is to go westward into Asia, the scripture says here, at least the ESV version says, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. To which should spin your head, get your head spinning around in utter confusion. Wait a second. Why would ever the Holy Spirit who has given the word, who has given the gospel, who indeed uh, is empowering them, sent forth by Christ to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, which includes Asia, why would he suddenly be seemingly saying, don't go speak the word in Asia? And what I want us to understand as we look at a few other verses, uh, I think the ESV slightly missed it here, but there's still something valuable to learn. The word that's been translated here, forbidden, is oft translated with the phrase, uh, or and I would say more frequently and more accurately translated, hindered or prevented. Now, let me give you a few verses where this, this same root is used. So sometimes to get an accurate understanding of things the Bible teach, it requires a more accurate understanding of the words that are used. Okay? You know, so if you've locked into one given translation, that translation uh, on some places may be fantastic. Other places, well, and they're not all the same. But, the, but you can go with me to uh, Matthew 19, verse 14. And if not, you can listen as I read, and then you have to believe me. <laughs> Matthew 19, verse 14 in the ESV also says this, and it's a similar word. Jesus said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. 
The same root word there, do not hinder them. Now, now the ESV, I mean the King James there still sticks with uh, uh, do not forbid them. But again, there wasn't a specific forbidding of the children. It seemed the parents also were trying to bring the children. The idea is they were blocking, they were hindering, they were stopping. In Acts chapter 8, verse 36, we see again the same root of the word. Now this is where the Ethiopian eunuch is traveling with Philip. And it says this in verse 36 of chapter 8 of the book of Acts. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from becoming baptized? So what prevents me? There even the King James uh, uh, says there, um, what doth hinder me? So what you still get is no matter what translation... The same word, sometimes they go with forbid, sometimes they go with prevent, sometimes they go with hinder. With regard to the preaching of the gospel, forbid is a very unlikely interpretation for the work of the Holy Spirit regarding the preaching of the gospel. That the Holy Spirit would forbid the preaching of the gospel is a bit difficult for me to wrap my mind around. Now... Just because I can't wrap my mind around it does not mean it's not there. But the careful study of the word seems like forbid is not the strongest word there. But the Holy Spirit prevented us. The Holy Spirit hindered us. Their intention within them was to go and do this. Uh -uh. I'll give you one more example of the word hindered, prevent, just to, to again lock it in even a little stronger where it can't possibly be a synonym just for forbid. And this is now in Hebrews 7. Well, I'll give you two more. Hebrews 7 verse 23 says, The former priests, that's the priests of the old covenant, were many in number because they were prevented by death. From continuing in office. All right. They did not continue in office. Why? Yeah, they died. That hindered their continuance. That prevented their continuance. It didn't forbid like you can't continue. Not, not, not that kind of a verbal forbidding. But a practical providential prevention. They done. And so somebody else is now in that place, and somebody else is now in that place. I'm going to show you just, just one more, just for the fun of it. Second Peter chapter 2, in speaking of Balaam, who loved wrongdoing and loved gain from wrongdoing, it says in chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, now on to 16, it says, uh, but Balaam was rebuked for his own transgression, a speechless donkey with a human voice restrained the prophet's madness. All right, so we've got another idea. Restrained. Restrained, prevented, hindered. So there's some sense in which their intention was to go to Asia to carry on this gospel work that they're doing, but they were restrained. They were prevented. They were hindered from doing so. 
And here's my question to you. How were they hindered? How were they prevented? And here is my answer. I don't know. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about that is if you want to know, there's plenty of commentaries out there and they will tell you. I don't know where they're getting it from. I mean, even faithful men. I'm going to quote for you two commentaries that are well-known and broadly used and considered significantly reliable. Even I would consider them significantly reliable. But when I read what they say on this verse, it just leaves me scratching my head thinking, huh? Because Jameson Fawcett Brown, a well-known uh, uh, commentary says this is how the holy spirit hindered or forbid them it says by speaking by some prophet okay so here's what what they've decided ah here's how the holy spirit forbid them a prophet showed up and said you can't go you can't do it not gonna happen another way what now does the passage say that no could it be that the God delivered by the power of the Spirit a message sending them a different direction through a prophet? Perhaps it is possible, but is this what the passage says? No, it doesn't say that. John Gill, who is oft remarkably insightful, John Gill says this in terms of how the Holy Spirit forbid them. Not by an articulate voice, but by a secret and powerful impulse upon their minds. Which I ask, can the Spirit produce a powerful inward impulse of restraint or, or, or redirection inwardly in our hearts and minds? Well, he can, but is this what this passage says? You know, and so men can end up wrangling over what it says, and 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 we could go uh, much further. Uh, some would say, well, they, they could have been hindered or the Holy Spirit prevented them by doing this in, in all kinds of practical ways. Possibly only one road led to Asia, and there was a landslide, and the road was impassable. Possibly on the day that they would plan to make their journey, they were, there was a, a sudden overcoming of illness and inability to make the journey. Okay, now I'm feeling better. L let's plan to leave tomorrow. Uh, again, again. And e that each time that happened. I don't know. But, but no, we, we know this. Whatever means it may be, a prophet speaking, a powerful inward in impulse, a practical uh, landslide, a roadslide, a rock avalanche, uh, uh, a debilitating, limiting illness, uh, uh, whatever it is, note this, God's going to move us where he would move us, and he's going to stop us. From where he would stop us. Now I must say this. I oft wonder when God's permitted me to get somewhere or do something. Why? 
Just as often as I might say when I can't get there or do something, why? You know, I think I, if I went there, it would be better, and it's not. And then I get there, and, and it's, it's bad, and I think, why do you let me get here? Well, uh, but the reality is, whether something is or is not the goodwill of God is not on the basis of how happy it makes me, how comfortable or convenient it works out. I mean, are we going to sit back and assess, you know what, Paul should have never gone to Lystra because he found out, going there, he gets stoned. So now he's going to understand he should have never gone there. That was not God's will. Was that his conclusion? His conclusion wasn't, I was in the wrong place, that's why I was stoned. His conclusion was much simpler than that. I was where doing what God would have me do in the place that God had me that day, and it led to my stoning, so be it. I'll move on to the next place, not knowing what's going to happen, but I'm going to keep serving, so be it. And we know that shortly thereafter, they went back through Derby and Lystra and visited with the disciples, and someone might think, didn't you learn your lesson the first time God doesn't want you there? But see, that's because we have such a tendency to determine the will of God on the basis of earthly, bodily, temporary good. Well, that can't be the will of God because I got sick. That can't be the will of God because I got hurt. Really? Brothers and sisters, let us be cautious. If you really want to say something is not the will of God, root that in the Scriptures. You know what is not the will of God? Lying. What is not the will of God? Immorality. What is not the will of God? Drunkenness. What is not the will of God? Living for self. We could go on and on. Well, what, those are the things. And, and what's shocking to me so many times, people are pleading with God and they're looking at their life and thinking, what is the will of God? This job or that job. What is the will of God? This school or that school. What is, and, and the actual will of God in terms of practically how they make their decisions in holiness and godliness. I'll worry about that once I get where I want to go and things are how I want them. Then I'll go ahead and worry about the practical holiness. Listen, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Well, what about this job? Well, I don't know about that job, but this I know is the will of God. Holiness, without which no man will see the Lord. What? Uh, but, but what about, the, and, we, and we get caught up in those other things, and we've got to slow down and say, look, I don't know. Again, with this, when it says, uh, go with me to verse 7 as well in Acts, Acts 16. They uh, had come up to Mycenae, and they attempted to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. <laughs> I mean, they keep trying to go places, and it's not working. So those who were briefly being anti-Asian, shame on you. you know, 
because that's not the case. It's not Asia was a problem. And actually, later he will end up going to Asia and, and planting churches there. Ephesus is one of the well-known churches that we know in scriptures in Asia. And we see in Acts 20 the tremendous love that Paul has for the elders and the people in, in that particular church. Now, uh, some have concluded, well, it must be because at that particular time, there was none yet elect with an appointed day unto salvation. Uh, since none would hear the gospel and be saved, ultimately that would be true, but I, there's no sense that that necessarily was communicated to them. Note this with me, if you would. Sometimes how these messages are delivered are unclear. It says this in Matthew chapter 4 verse 1. This is after Jesus has been baptized by John. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. And I ask you this, how did he lead him into the wilderness? And so a lot of us will can come up with different things. Hey, follow me. And he led him, and he was following the, or wrapped him with like a rope, and he pulled him, or again, uh, the, an inward impulse. Interestingly, Mark says it this way in Mark 1.12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. In Luke 4.1, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So listen, brothers and sisters, there can be mystery with regard to what are the purposes and providences of God in our life. We don't know. But I want you to note this. A strong inward impulse is not enough for you and I to conclude that is the will of God. Because sometimes that is selfish desire. Sometimes that's worldly ambition. Sometimes that's the action of pride. Sometimes it's the call for convenience. Sometimes it's a multitude of things. That's not the way that we come to know. I, I do love also uh, this idea of, try, of being led by the Spirit. You want to get a strong sense of it? It's kind of like what I told you before. You read Galatians chapter 5. You know what the works of the flesh are and what the flesh leads you to? And it lists all kinds of attitudes and actions of immorality, sin, and compromise. And you know what? All who are led by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. They turn away from wickedness and they walk in obedience to God. All who are led by the Spirit fulfill the law of God. So just let's keep these ideas in our mind that the predominant and most significant way in which we plead with God and commit to God to be led by the Spirit is in the clear accordance with His Word. The other matters, He will take care of by providing a strong impulse to which God willing we pray through. We get engage others to pray also concerning we seek godly and wise counsel. 
I've given this example before. Uh, years ago, I received a, um, an email from a man who uh, had within him a strong and powerful impulse for apparently about 20 years while pastoring a church in America, a strong and powerful impulse to go as a missionary to the Caribbean islands, to the Caribbean. Now, some of you are laughing, but the gospel needs to go even to nice, nice places. So let's not judge too harshly on that point. Uh, but uh, that there was this strong impulse, and he had announced to his church, I can't keep saying no anymore. I got to go. And he writes to a bunch of people saying, pray for me, support me, because I'm going. Because finally, I'm saying, all right, after 20 years of this so powerfully within me, I'm going. In less than a year, he was back. Because the people I was going to work with there weren't trustworthy some of the things that had been said and promised did not work out. The ministry was not what I thought it would be. And so I'm back. Now, I, I, I'm not, the, the goal here is not to judge that man. But the challenge is this. A 20-year powerful inward impulse, and it ain't working out. It ain't fun. It's even harder than the church I left, which I thought the grass was greener. Whatever it may be, no. No, 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 no. And so all I would say and I want to remind you is this. Sometimes those powerful inward impulses might be you. Thinking the grass is greener on the other side. And you don't know it's just weeds. From that distance, you just see the green. I'm talking about my yard at this point. All right. but, but note this, and I want us to, to never miss this point just as we set this up. 1 John 4, 1 says this very clearly. Do not miss this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into this world. Test the spirits. Do you note that? So somebody says, but I, but I heard a voice. Okay. Whose voice was it? I had a dream. Who gave you that dream? You don't know the source of it. Test these voices. Test these impulses. Test these dreams. Test everything. And by what basis do I say to test it? By the proven and unchanging word of God. Is the enemy leading you to do something that you ought not to do? Years ago in the early church following a, a fellow named Marcion, there were these uh, two ladies who became prophetesses supposedly in his movement leaving their husbands and families to follow him. This is what God would have me do. Mama, God would have you be a good wife. He would have you love and submit and honor your husband. 
He would would have you manage your household well. He would have you participate in in the uh, education and in the raising up of your children and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is what God would have you do. It is written. Nah, not for me. For me, I feel this powerful inward impulse to leave hubby and to leave kiddos and to go and do this instead. Really? The idea that God is going to compel someone with an inward impulse to act in violation to the written word is absolute wrong. And a person is is fooling themselves. They are deceiving themselves or being deceived. It is dangerous. Be careful. Now listen. So who is at work? God is ultimately in control, and he's sovereign over all. But I'll take you to a second passage. Now go with me, if you would, 2 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18. Now this is slightly different. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time. We were there, but we were torn away from you. Now we do know, of course, they ended up being run out of Thessalonica. And the people in Thessalonica hated them so much, they chased them down to other places. They chased them down to Berea, and they kept going after them. But we endeavor all the more eagerly and desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, do you hear a difference in the verse I just read compared to the other ones? The first ones, we're seeing the Holy Spirit hindered. The Spirit of Jesus did not allow. And here it says, Satan hindered us. So listen, and I want you to think about this. So Paul wants to go to Thessalonica. Satan hinders him from going. So is Satan stronger than Paul? Sure. Is Satan stronger than you and me? Sure. Is he smarter than you and me? Is he a hair bit older than you and me? Yeah. Again, we have been made lower than the angels of which the enemy, the adversary, the devil is a fallen angel. He's just got more going on in terms of intellect and power than we do. So Satan hindered him. But note this, I ask you. Satan may be more powerful than Paul. Is Satan more powerful than God? It's fun that as I look out there, I'm seeing the answer come even before I get the question out. Well done. (laughs) Because, I mean, that's the... Well... Satan hindered them, but Satan cannot hinder them unless it is God's will, God's purpose. So wait a second. So then Satan is hindering them to keep Paul from going back to Thessalonica, to keep him going on to different places in the preaching of the gospel. So Satan's hindrances actually serve the purposes of God. Yes, indeed. 
And I want us to understand this. All of the bad, all of what we might call the wicked, all of the abuses and tortures and afflictions and miseries and things, the, the evils of this world. Indeed, Satan or any of his minions or even the sinful actions of men may be the agency of the evil, may be the one doing the evil. But I want us to not forget who is nonetheless sovereign over all things, whether they seem to us to be good or evil. And I'm going to show you a few verses uh, uh, from God's word that help to, to, to lock this in for us a little bit more clearly. Now, one of the th interesting things that we do see, for example, is written to the churches in Galatia. It says this um, in Galatians 4, 13 and 14. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I first Preach the gospel to you. Okay, So how did Paul end up preaching the gospel in the churches of Galatia? He says one of the practical reasons he ended up in those places was because of a bodily ailment. Which means it would seem if the bodily ailment was not there, he's headed somewhere else. Farther afoot. Whatever it may be, but because of his practical limitations of a bodily ailment, he's there. He's stuck. He's reduced and restrained in the, in the amount and degree that he can travel. And as a result of that, he's locked in that place, but he's still serving in that place. So note this. It may be the bodily ailment was the work of the devil. It may be. Would it be the will of the devil that Paul would effectively preach the gospel in the churches of Galatia? But that's exactly what God accomplished. So listen, as the devil tries to exercise his will of steal, kill, and destroy, as the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, whatever bite he may get that may render us uh, some to some degree um, unable to move about effectively for a time. God uses that effectively, right? Stirs up the wicked children of Israel uh, uh, to come against Paul so that Paul ends up appealing to Caesar. He gets put in prison. He writes to the church at Philippi, look, I know you're, it upsets you that I'm in prison, but you know what God has done? God has actually worked it for the proclamation of the gospel. He's given me an opportunity to deliver the gospel to the praetorian guard that belongs to Caesar, a people we would not normally communicate with and have access to, and God has given me this opportunity. So what some might call a problem in prevention, he's not out moving about and able to preach the gospel in all these places. He sees as a providential, purposeful hand of God that puts him in a place 
where he's able to do something he wouldn't have done otherwise. And God is then using his imprisonment to stir up others to get out and get it done in other places. So listen, even when we think our work is weakened, God is not weakened in any way. Even when we think our will is thwarted, and even when the enemy and our enemies think their wills are done, God's ultimate will is being accomplished. Note this again, Paul speaking in 1 Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 12, speaking of the thorn in the flesh. We know this. It seems Paul really felt for his own life, for his own well-being, for his own ministry, it would be beneficial for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. So he pleaded with God, did he not? Three times. And listen to what it says uh, in verse uh, uh, 7. To keep me from becoming, because of the surpassing greatness of her revelations, to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Now the sense of that, that a thorn was given me, that's by the permission of God. But it is a permission of God to let Satan get at him in a way that Satan had previously been prevented to get at him. Satan wants to destroy him, wants to bring him shame, wants to bring him weakness, wants to destroy him and bring him ruin, but could not do so for a long season in his ministry. Now he seems to be afflicted by this thorn in the flesh. And note what it says there, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now listen, Paul thought I could carry on this ministry better if this thorn in the flesh was gone. But God in his infinite wisdom knew the success of the ministry and of the purposes of God don't depend on the vitality of Paul, do they? They depend entirely on the will of God. And he can use any spokesman, any instrument that he pleases. And so Paul thinks that this is needed, but God, again, not, not compromising the success of his sovereign grace in saving souls, but accomplishing a multitude of things. He's not only still sending forth the gospel, he's also working in his grace to keep his people humble, to keep them faithful. The means that God used to keep Paul humble, keep Paul from becoming conceited, was he granted a messenger of Satan access to him to harass him. And he would have this, this pain, this difficulty, this struggle. What was it? I do not know. But it could indeed be a bodily ailment. Indeed, the scriptures say in Luke chapter 13, verse 16, as, as Jesus is healing um, a woman on the Sabbath day, and they're so upset, it says, Ought not, Luke 13, 16, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on this Sabbath day, indicating that this woman's ailment that kept her bodily uh, uh, struggling 
was the work of Satan. But who permits Satan to do what he does? Who can absolutely end Satan from doing anything that he's doing? God. And so we've got to get a grasp of this or we won't understand it. Satan is hard at work, but it is always under the sovereign hand of God. Again, to get this picture clear. Um, uh, look with me quickly, if you would. Second Samuel chapter 24. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. If you had those both in your Bible, you'd be able to flip back quickly. If not, I have them, and so I'll take you there. Uh, these are parallel passages. God had told uh, that the kings were not to number the people, take a census, lest they become a little bit conceited. Also, at times, the problem would be as they would take a census, they would start to have confidence in our numbers our army, our people, and not realize, hey, the battle belongs to the Lord. <laughs> it, it doesn't depend on how many soldiers you have, you know. Uh, how, how much uh, stability, how much greatness, how much success, how much honor you have, it doesn't depend on how many people are there. Everything is dependent on the hand and will of God. Don't let your pride run you ahead. Well, David took a census of the people. It seems that God even allowed David to take a census of the people because God was angry with the sinful patterns and practices. The children of Israel were living sinfully, and it says the anger of God was kindled against them. And it says this in 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. The anger of God, again, the anger of God was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, go and number all the people. All right. So you have that story. There. God is angry with them. And so in the design of God, David is to be incited. So the ultimate designer of David being provoked to take this census, it is within the purposes and will of God. Which is what is stated here, he incited. But, 1 Corinthians, I mean, 1 Chronicles. Let me say that again clearly. 1 Chronicles. Sometimes you look at the notes and it says CH, and you're thinking, what? 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1 says this. Then Satan stood against Israel. And incited David to number Israel. And so David went and told Joab and they numbered them. And you sit back and say, wait a second. One chapter says God was angry with Israel. So he incited David. The other chapter, also inspired by the word of God, given by the same Holy Spirit, says Satan incited David. So who incited David? God, God's will, but the agent of inciting, the agent of temptation was who? Satan. Because Satan will go, and, and Satan can only do what God permits. To a degree, you've got to note this. The scriptures are very clear. When someone is, says they're tempted, 
They cannot, James chapter 1, they cannot say that when I am tempted, I am tempted of God. Because God does not tempt anyone. But when God has purposed for someone to be tempted, he permits the tempter access. And so these verses uh, show us the one doing the tempting and the exciting to, towards conceit. The agent of activity is the devil. But who is sovereign over the activity of the devil? The devil's goal is not that God's people might experience his wrath, that they might turn to him again. No, he's got a simple design, destroy. But God is working purposes and even using. Uh, the way that it's often rightly understood is to conceive of the devil is not any different practically in what he can do than a junkyard dog on a chain. The dog can only go so far. He can't go beyond that. And as long as you're beyond that, that point where that chain is, you're good, right? I mean, you, you can dance and sway and point and laugh. You can do whatever you want to. The, the dog can be right there barking, drooling, whatever it may be, fangs showing. But he can't get you because he's hindered. But here's a problem. What happens if you go steal what you're stealing from the junkyard by way of example, not something that actually happens, and you don't know it, but in between, the owner of the junkyard came back. And he added another six-foot extension to the chain. So you go back by there whistling and skipping. Uh-oh. <laughs> What's happening? That junkyard dog is nipping. You know, he, he's getting you in the grip. This is the kind of thing, and the scriptures are really clear in how they teach this. Um, go with me, if you would, and we have to in this to, to, to get this clear sense. Go with me to Job chapter 1. So powerfully noted, the same example in Job chapter 1. Now note this, as confusing as it may seem to some, here in the beginning of Job, it says that... Uh, uh, God is there, and it says, uh, let's go down to verse 6 of, of Job 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God, here generally this is a reference to angels. It's, it's, it's a way that poetically the Old Testament might be pleased to oft refer to them. The sons of God came to present themselves before God, and Satan also came among them. Now, I know some of you are going to say, wait a second, God is uh, bringing in his troops of angels who are going about carrying out his plans, and as they're given their reports and receiving their orders, Satan also showed up? Well, that's what it says. Well, I don't think, that, I don't think that's possible. Well, you're wrong. How do I know you're wrong? Because that's what it says. Well, I don't understand why God would let Satan come along with the rest of his angels and, and talk to him. You're right. 
You don't understand why. But know this, he did. How do you know? We just went through this. I know it sounds like I'm arguing with myself, but it's just the wrestling that we have uh, uh, sometimes not letting the Scripture say what it says. He came among, and it was by God's design, even as God says, so what you been doing? Where have you come from? Now, when God asks that question, does he need the information? No, again, uh, those kinds of things are often to indicate to an individual that's being communicated to their responsibility or accountability to authority. You know, when God says, uh, how did you know you were naked to Adam? Is he trying to figure it out? Of course not. Is that, so where, and from going to and fro on the earth. Okay, thank you for the detailed account of what you've been up to. That's it. Well, to and fro, it is interesting because that's the similar words to what Peter gives us. Uh, he goes to and fro like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He doesn't need to go into detail. God knows the details. He says what? Walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? So I ask you this, Job is getting ready to experience a multitude of misery. Yeah? I mean, just unbelievable agony in terms of practical loss and even bodily suffering. Tremendous. Whose design is this? Satan is going to carry it out, but it is by God's design. How do I know this? Well, again, God says, have you considered Job? Who draws Satan's attention to Job? And Job will actually indicate he has considered him. And it's just not worked out. I've considered him, but the problem is I'm chained. He's hedged. He's protected. I can't get at him. I can't get at his things. So I've considered him. But not. But when God says consider him, he's giving him an opportunity con to consider him again. And he says, look, he praises you, he's faithful, all these things, because you, verse 10, have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions increased his land. Now, this is what Satan says in verse 11. Stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to his face. Now, you know what God does? He lets out the chain a bit. Does he let out the chain as far as Satan would like? No. Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy. But he's only at this per point permitted to steal the things of Job and kill the loved ones and possessions of Job, but he can't touch Job. And this is the way it said here in verse 11. But stretch out your hand. Satan says to God, stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to his face. So Satan is telling God, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. And then God says to Satan what? Verse 12. Behold, 
all that he has is in your hand. So God stretches out his hand of permission, allowing Satan to stretch out his hand of destruction. And he carries it out, but look how it's limited. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So he's stuck. Now he goes, he attacks, he takes all of his kids, he takes all of his goats, all of his lambs, all of his camels, all of these things are taken in one fell swoop. And when you, when you read about it, it's interesting because some of his animals are destroyed because fire from God fell. So God permitted Satan access on that occasion to call fire down from heaven. Wind blew and blew the four corners of the uh, structure that his children were eating under. We know this, God hurls the wind. God can send fire down from heaven. God can also permit Satan to exercise a degree of activity in those things. Only limited by God's design and accomplishing God's ends. But all in between is the evil intent of the enemy. Now, that's why it says at the end of this uh, event in chapter 1, it says, uh, as his wife uh, speaks to him, he says this, let's see, uh, when this happened, verse 20, he fell on the ground and worshipped. All his kids, all of his things, gone. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, he would not be entirely wrong to say Satan has taken away. But he says here the Lord has taken away. Why? Because Satan has only taken away by purpose and permission of the Lord. So he's going beyond the immediate agent. We may be persecuted by this man. We may at some time be persecuted by a particular government. But we've got to understand, the one who purposes and is over all of that persecution, over all of that affliction, is God. And he's with us in it, and he's with us through it. And we see that same event unfold in chapter 2 and God then lets out the chain a little bit further and he can now tremendously afflict Job with illness but you cannot kill him and Job becomes uh, uh, terribly miserably sick so bad it says the the way that when Satan is giving permission to attack him bodily it says this verse 7 went out Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And when he is finally given access, he's all in. I mean, this, is, this isn't, uh, you know, just a little bit on, on, on his upper thigh. This is everything from top to bottom in misery where it says this, and he took pieces of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. 
I mean, do you sense the misery of that circumstance? And his wife says, why do you hold fast to integrity? Curse God and die. And he says in verse 10 of chapter 2, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Well, some of them might say, well, he didn't receive evil from God. The person who actually afflicted him with sores was Satan. Yes, but only according to the design and decree of God. No more, no less. And so that's when we, we, have, we understand this. That's why... But in all this, as hard as it is to understand, uh, though it says, shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil, does God do evil? No, no, no. God does not do evil, but he purposes and permits the activity of evil beings and men. Don't ever forget, still in the book of Job, this important verse, chapter 34, verse 12, of a truth, God will not do evil wickedly so when god is allowing temptation when god is allowing affliction when god is allowing loss and death and misery you cannot accuse god of evil the agent of evil is men as well as the devil the liar as well as the father of lies yet god is over it all so we need not fear, because what can the enemy do to us? And note this, Satan would find out that once God has let out the chain a bit, he's not bound to leave it, leave it let out. If he wants to, he can pull that chain back. And suddenly, he has no access to Job. And God will restore and go beyond the blessings that he had given Job before. So God is able to give a little, he's able to restrain, he's able to remove. Understand the greatness of our God. Oh, let us not miss this at any point along the way. And I, and, and I just want to go on to one more clear point that I don't want to miss uh, today. And, and that is going with me down to verse 9. And we'll take this up again uh, next week. It says this. So, so they couldn't go. They couldn't go to these places. And, and they must be wondering to themselves, where then are we supposed to go? And God gives Paul a vision in the night. A man of Macedonia comes to him. Look, and it's interesting also. The commentators like to say, well, how did Paul know he was a man of Macedonia? Well, clearly from the way he was dressed. I don't know that. Well, clearly from his accent or his language. Why, why are we always saying things that it doesn't say? I, you know, in, in, in striving for simplicity, like to think the reason why he knew he was Macedonian is because he says this, come over to Macedonia. I mean, that's enough, right? I mean... But within, the, it's just frightening how people love uh, to close their Bibles and read between the lines and, and, and read in the margins. And whatever you wrote in the margins is not inspired by the Spirit. And it says, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
and immediately, and Paul, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. Listen, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I'm going to just note this by way of closing. What did he say? Come help us. And what did they conclude? They need the gospel. Well, how do you know they don't need fresh water in a famine? How do you know they don't need a food pantry or a food closet? And, and how do you know they don't need that? How do you know they don't need medical care and attention? And by that, oftentimes when the disciples, apostles would go around, they would reach a place and they would bring all of the sick and diseased and they would heal every disease. But listen to me closely. When they say, come and help us, one thing becomes abundantly clear in the mind of the apostle and is delivered to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What is the highest priority with regard to the help of men? The gospel of Jesus Christ. They need the good news of the word of God. That is the highest priority. For those who don't yet have it, and I'll say it again, they went back through all of the churches, strengthening them in the faith by speaking the word of God to them. You know what is the greatest help for the lost world? The gospel preached. You know what is the greatest help for God's people? The word of God and the gospel preached. You know what is the most essential help at all times and in all places with eternal influence and eternal impact? God's word. We put all kinds of other things first. In this day and age, People fix their eyes on other things. And even these things have kind of got pushed aside. It's scary that to a degree, um, isolation almost becomes anti-evangelism. Uh, I was hearing from someone recently, says, it seems that the coronavirus has become the anti-church, anti-evangelism virus. God help us. We as God's people, are always the church. And we will strive by His grace to gather in His name and be strengthened in His word. And we will, whatever the darkness, be light in this present world. Jesus said, I am the light of this world. While I am with you, you have light. And then when He is going, He says, you are the lights of the world. I say this and uh, as a concern. We are, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of the fear of death, we are the light of the world. We are the lampstand, that city that's on a hill. Do you light a lampstand and then put a basket over it? It seems that at a time when the world needs the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a little bit of a basket over it. God help us to be light in this world because you know what's most we don't need to fear the enemy we don't need to fear those who are under the influence of the enemy because beyond above and over it all is God and the gospel is what God has delivered it proves true the promises that he set forth in his gospel prove true so what can man do to us what can the enemy do to us? 
What can we lose? Indeed, anything that could be taken from us, we find is but gain. Because everything else is rubbish compared to knowing Christ and being found in Him. Well, we got to close up with that, so let's pray. Lord, we are just um, so thankful for the time that we can have in Your Word. Lord, we do live in a time where there is oft perplexing providence and it's hard to figure it out. But we're thankful that in events and circumstances as they unfold, we can rest confident that you are always and ever in control. Even in those seems, things where it seems that uh, the enemy seems to be prevailing, we know that he is yet only accomplishing your purposes. Lord, we pray that you would help us in an understanding of the words of Scripture. You'd help us in a yielding to the ways of Scripture. You'd help us to, uh, to be led by the Spirit through what the Scriptures actually say, uh, to not be taken away with our own thoughts and inward impulses. But we pray that your Spirit would, in accordance with your Word, drive us to live in holy and godly ways. Lord, we do not fear the enemy because we know that he can only accomplish what you permit. And we pray in the midst of everything that prevails around us, whatever confusion, whatever calamity, whatever chaos, whatever persecutions, whatever plagues, Lord, we pray that we would be fixed upon that unshakable priority. Nothing has more essential and abiding value than your word proclaimed to your people and proclaimed to the world. In Jesus' name we pray.